Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. So Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the word. That's real, that's relevant, that's pertinent. And for some reason has stood the test of time, decades and millennia, generation after generation. Somehow this book still is here. And God, not only that, but the deeper we study, the more we find out that for some reason, too, your words are still relevant. They're still applicable. They still speak and they can still lead. So, Father, I pray that in this room today, we would silence our minds, silence our anxious thoughts, endless to-do lists, and be present being formed by you. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. So we've, we've started a series last week, and it's called Most Tatted. Now that means tattooed. Some of you guys, I'm, I'm trying to set the table here, because here's the funny thing is, as a believer and somebody who really uh, follows the Lord and loves the Lord and loves the Word, what I find interesting is that there's a couple common passages that everybody gets tattooed all over themselves, right? So last week we talked, did a deep dive on the chapter of Jeremiah 29, and then ultimately broke down how Jeremiah 29, 11 is like mildly ironic when people are like, oh, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, give you hope in a future, literally written to a people who've, who are in exile, who are in bondage, whose city's been overthrown and ransacked and now have 70 years of being borderline slaves in another country they don't want to be a part of. So it's just interesting because once again, I think... We pick out scriptures that we're like, man, this synopsizes a lot, and I love what it says, but contextually, what we've wanted to do is, is highlight some of these passages. So this week is John 3.16, but then next week we're going to do Philippians 4.13, and then I'm going to do a couple stories that are like, are, are like what people get tattooed as like pictures on themselves. So some of you guys are like, why are we talking so much about tattoos? Mainly because I want to get a tattoo of my mom's face in the 80s right here. It's funny because she thinks I'm joking, but I keep showing her pictures of herself like, hey, do you like this picture? Because it's going to be on me forever. <laughs> and my dad knows I'm serious, but my mom a little bit is like, oh, no, he's joking. Like, there's no way. And it's like, oh, no, your face will be right here. <laughs> so some of you guys, when you come back in the fall, who knows? Jill shut up right there. Anyway, so we've been in this mass, most tatted series where we're focusing on verses that everybody just loves to get tattooed on them. And so today is, once again, I mentioned it before, John 3.16. And really the subtitle is this, Big Picture Perspective. John 3.16, obviously there's a reason I'm saying that is because John 3.16 within the context of the verse has massive big picture implications for our faith. 24 words that now become the creed of what Jesus was attempting and did do with his ministry and his mission. 24 words that now most followers of Christ can recite. 24 words that I believe absolutely have reason to be most at it. (laughs) But more than that, 24 words that I think, within the context of what they are, stand for so much more than just a phrase we can utter when somebody asks us what Christianity is. So before I jump into that, though, I, I kind of, 
Um, I was reminded this week, and I felt like this today was this moment where I had a, I was praying and, and reading and studying, and I kind of got a picture in my room. And in that picture, we've all seen big projectors, right? And I would even say this, we've all been to movie theaters. I'm a big movie guy. I love going to the movie theaters. But I remember years ago, I got a picture where I felt like the Lord was challenging me. He said, Micah, you're too close. And he showed me a picture of a movie theater, and my face was a foot away from the screen. And, like, think about that, right? If we went to the movie theater, and you're sitting there watching, and somebody is this far from the screen, you'd be like, what in the world? But I felt like what the Lord was doing was saying, Micah, stop trying to see the entire screen from up close and start backing up and trusting the picture. And I felt like what God's trying to do today is I feel like some of us have had this surface of John 3.16 right here and God's challenging us to back up and start to understand what John 3.16 really is and what it really means to us today. But really the first thing I want to attack is this, is, is I believe what's, what's permeating a lot of kingdom mentality, and, and I would say this, is God churning up the waters of what the church is today, is this bare minimum Christian involvement mindset. Meaning what we do is we're so busy, we're so overworked, we're so anxious, we're so endlessly scrolling, we have so much to do all the time, that what happens is, is we try to, like everything else in our culture, fit God inside of what is the bare minimum I can do to have a successful existence following Jesus. What is, what is the, how can I compartmentalize this, get it down to three practical steps, and then be able to tell people I'm a Christian, and then like talk about it just enough for people to be like, okay, yeah, yeah, he follows Jesus. And I'm reminded of this story, and this is going to be really incriminating, but I promise I'm going somewhere with this. And also, I was borderline saved when I was, this story existed, which is me my senior year. <clears throat> I got voted most mischievous and class clown, just in case you're wondering. When my mom found that out, she pulled me aside and she's like, Michael, what does that exactly mean? I was like, it means a lot of good things. <laughs> Incredible things, mother. But I remember my senior year, I did all kind of types of schooling. So I did private, public, and homeschool. My senior year, I, had, I went back. I went back my junior and senior year. And in order to graduate from my high school, I had to take specific classes. And one of those was physics. Now, I, hate, I was one of the guys where I could do English and social studies. But, but math and science, those were ones where I was like, mm, those aren't my favorite. So physics class, what I realized, though, is I was mostly in a class. I was in a class as a senior. Most people in my school were in a class as a sophomore. And I also, the first day I was there, walked in, and I've always been friends with people who were older than me. And I realized my teacher was 25, and I was 18. Now, my best friend at the time was literally 28. And so I, you know, and I repented this, Lord, but I could not take physics serious with pretty much my best friend trying to teach it to me. And what I mean by that is me and my teacher actually stuck up a relationship, and it was fun, and he was an awesome guy, and to this day, actually, we've, we've communicated a little, but I know he probably still hates me a tiny bit. Um, but here's the thing, toward about when you're in your senior year, and some of you guys know this, is there's something that happens around January. <laughs> and by something that happens, it's, you hit January, or some of us, you know, September or December, October, or like two years early, just scraping by as long as I get the piece of paper. Um, but I remember January hits and I'm like, man, I am done trying in physics. So this is where my mind goes. Okay. 
Once again, y'all are not allowed to judge me. You can judge at the end of the sermon, not the beginning. Okay, don't disconnect on this story because some of you are going to be like, I can't believe you're preaching. It's fine. I'm sitting in the class one day and I realize I'm quantifying in my head what is the most minimal amount of work I can physically do to get a B minus, not be grounded and still have weekend activities. Because my parents would ground us for C's. So I'm sitting there and I realize, I realize, okay, we have tests every month, a test and a quiz. But if I, if you turn in your homework and it's completed, you'll get a hundred percent on homework. And if you get a low D, if you get a D and you get a hundred on your homework, you can hold a B minus by, I mean, a, a point one fraction of a percentage. And so what does this entail? This entails my friends doing my homework for me and then me bombing tests and quizzes and then me and my teacher were such good friends that he would ask me to enter or I would enter in grades for him and I would change my low F to a D. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Some of you guys are like, don't worry, I'm going somewhere with this. And so I remember, I remember. So I'm getting a B minus in this class and my teacher you know, my teacher like, is like, dude, there's no way. You're copying your friend's homework and you're bombing every test. There's no way. And I remember I graduate, and the day before my graduation, my physics teacher comes up to me. He goes, so a B minus the last semester. And I said, yeah. He said, a B minus. <laughs> I was like, yeah. He's like, a B minus. <laughs> and I was like, B minus. But what's interesting is, is I had factored in. Some of you guys, once again, stick with me. I promise I'm going somewhere with this story. And also, I like to demystify the pastors are perfect people. We're just going to go right out the gate and tell you I'm a failure. Uh, so I remember, I, I, I'll never forget, though, right, is I had quantified in my mind what the bare minimum involvement in practice it would take for me to get by in a passing grade. And I did that. Now, I believe a lot of the times in faith, what we do is we try to quantify the bare minimum we can get by to have God involved in our life and get the passing outside grade, but inside say, God, I need more of you, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to put in effort that I've, we we get to a season where we face a trial and we realize we have a faith deficiency and God is challenging us to put more work in, but we're so used to the bare minimum. And the appearance that we have it, that to put in more work would to say to others that we didn't have what they thought we did. Or should I, could I take it a step further? As many of us, we've been in this room and we've been conditioned to a bare minimum mindset. And God, I believe in the church today, is confronting people and challenging us to go deeper. Deeper in our theology and deeper in our walk, in which God is not time frames, He is not Sunday mornings, He is rather a person and a presence that is with us in everything. His Bible, we can find ways to literally meet every person in every situation on every subject matter related to everything in our world. See, that is what God is wanting to do, I believe, in the earth again. One of my favorite verses, and it's one I've said here a million times, to be a tree firmly planted by streams of water yields fruit in all seasons. What does it mean to be a tree? I'm from Michigan, going through a snowstorm, right, looking out in the orchard and seeing apples on an apple tree. 
What would it look like to have such a spiritual existence in which what everybody else says you can't survive, you can't get through, or you have every right to walk away from God, you're still producing fruit. See, today the challenge is this, getting away from a bare minimum passing grade to actually finding the life and vitality that he purchased. So what I'm going to attempt to do today, and I was literally verbally processing this with my wife on the way, and some of you guys are like, are you going to ever read the Bible? Great. So happy you asked, because we're about to spend a lot of time in it. And by a lot, about uh, 17 minutes. (laughs) Is it 17? 18? 19? (laughs) But I was processing... I was processing the fact that this is a sermon that I've, I've never really done an outline like this before. And what I mean by this is I was challenged by the Lord this week. Okay, if you're going to do John 3.16, I want you to be very open-minded to a very different type of way of preaching than you've done. So what, we're gonna, what I'm going to attempt to do is take two to three verses starting in John 3.1. And we're going to go through verse 17. And we're going to do two to three verses, stop, and do three points from each verse to add the framework to understanding John 3:16 through the lens of what I believe the God wants us to do to back us up from the screen that's been right in front of our face and start to see something different and for some of us maybe make a decision today to not just do the bare minimum to pass but to do more so with that let's start John 3 1 through verse 2 And I think, once again, let's not cherry pick on 316. I promise I'll end with that and we'll go hard on it. But I'm going to tell you this. Let's start from the beginning to get that contextual realization of what's trying to be communicated by this gospel. It says this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. You know what's interesting, and once again, I'm going to go very kind of punchline through these verses, is I believe for some of us, what we don't realize is Nicodemus has a little bit more in common with us than we realize. A good teacher and one who can do signs. He looks at Jesus and he says, man, you're an incredible teacher and you can do things I never thought that you could. But what's interesting about that remark is that it actually shows a narrow sightedness. See, while everybody else is calling Jesus the Messiah and the Savior, Nicodemus is saying good teacher and who can do signs. Let me take this and unpack it even a step further. You know what Nicodemus's name means? People's victory. What was Jesus The literal personification of a people's victory in which the people had been defeated since the dawn of time by sin and Jesus offered up as a sacrifice is now the ultimate victory for that sin. Nicodemus is looking at his literal name meaning right in front of him. And you know what he's saying? Hey, you're a good teacher. Oh, you have you have the ability to do great things. He's missing the fact that even though he is trained in all of the right things, brought up in all of the right realms, his reasoning is off. And more than that, the challenge, I think, for some of us is that really Nicodemus, if, we're, if we really want to get nitty gritty, they say that he came to Jesus at night because he was afraid of being actually seen with him. 
There's this trepidation that as he's starting to, get, as we start to get into the John 3.16 dialogue, it's coming from a man who's not just, he's not skeptical, but he's not believing. He's not, he's not wholehearted, but he is a little bit half-hearted. He's somebody who looks at God and has the right idea of who he is, but he doesn't actually see all that he is. See, this is the start of John 3.16. The next chunk, though, and this is where I think it start, we start to get really interesting, is John 3, 3 through verse 8. It says this, Jesus then answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Another statement that I believe many of us today miss the meaning on, and I'm gonna I'm gonna add a lot of context because think about it, right? If somebody like I love, you know, when you're super zealous in sharing your faith, great. But when you walk up to somebody and you're like, hey, have you been born again? It's like there's a reason we've got some weird labels on us, guys. Like, this is one where you're like, okay, are you bored again? It's like, what? Like, you want me to? And Nicodemus is in that, like, wait, hold on. He, like, looks at Jesus and he's like, he's like, okay, so explain that one to me. You know what born again means in the Greek? It actually has a definition. And it's the Greek word, born again is the Greek word, anothen. And what it actually means is not a repeat over again. It means from above. So let me fill this in for you. When Jesus says you need to be born again, he's not saying you need to repeat the physical nature of what being born is. He says that you need to be born of something above. Think about that. Let that revelation sit in you right now. Right, when we talk about, well, we got to get born again in the Spirit of God. We need to be born again in the image of Jesus. We need to be born again of His Son and what He purchased. What what Jesus is really saying is you need to be born of something above that is not of this earth that changes who you are. Let's continue reading. It says this, verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But do you know when it, where it comes from and where it is going? So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know, there's an interesting insight, and I'm going to get to it after this passage, where Jesus actually trickles in an Old Testament prophecy. Many scholars believe that there's one instance in the Old Testament that he would have been rehearsed in and, and well-versed in, and it's this idea of being born of the Spirit and of water. And where that's actually found is in Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 through verse 27. It says this, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will bring it about that you will walk in my statues and you will be careful to follow my ordinances. So listen to this. Jesus is actually trying to meet Nicodemus where he is. He's saying, you need to be born of my spirit and born of water. And what he's really pointing to is this prophecy about him. That he will be sprinkled, that water will be sprinkled that will clean all filth. That a spirit will be given in which the law will be written on the heart and a new ordinance and statue will be instituted for you to follow. So Jesus is not is saying, hey, be born of above and also realize that being born of above is allowing myself to be sprinkled in baptism and in the cleansing of your sin and heart to allow yourself to be born again, born of above is to allow me to cleanse you and then give you a new way of living in my spirit. See, Nicodemus misses this, though, because he's still stuck on the, how do I go into my mother again? How does this birth take place twice? This is weird. And what we see, actually, is Jesus uses this language that goes over people's head multiple times, right? The famous cannibalistic verse, eat my flesh and drink my blood is fantastic, Right? So often what we do is we read scripture and we look and we look through this natural lens of, okay, God, like I know what it means to be born again of resurrection, but at the same time, born, born again of resurrection. Can you explain that to me? Born of above, sprinkled in the waters of baptism and the washing of sin and filth away, given a spirit that then helps us walk in the ordinances and statues of God. See, this is the challenge that he's presenting to Nicodemus. And I want to say this today. Born again from above is the start of this. But born of the Spirit is the actual point that he's trying to make. See, being born of above had been done before, but as Jesus is introducing a thought of being born of the Spirit, this is something people have never grasped. So Jesus, in his gospel ministry and in his three years, sprinkles in this idea that he will be somebody who leaves a spirit upon his people, but it is mysterious in all of its ways and not understood, yet Jesus is consistently pointing to it, knowing that when the day comes when it is given to man, It will be undeniable. So as we continue to read, we're framing Nicodemus. Remember the start. Not understanding. He's literally the people's victory. And not only that, he's, he's the people's victory and he's got all the right language, but he doesn't actually see Jesus for who he is. Then Jesus starts with the challenge of being born from above, sprinkled with the water of baptism and forgiveness, and then given a spirit in which we can constitute The idea of an existence around the ordinances and statues of God. So Jesus is adding these layers to Nicodemus as we speak. And it's funny because if you didn't know this, I mentioned Nicodemus on Easter. One of the men who actually came and buried Jesus in a public display of defiance against the Pharisees. Saying, I will take care of your dead body even though I may not have seen you for who you are and your living. He's a great example to us. Let's continue reading. It says this, the next chunk, John 3, 9 through verse 15. Nicodemus then said, how can all of these things be? 
How can all of these things be? And once again, this is from the place where God is saying, you know, be born of the Spirit. And that was that ending point. How can this be? What even is being born of the Spirit? First you said be born again. Now you're saying be born of something that doesn't, none of us have ever really even read or understand. How can this be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Many believe that actually what Jesus is doing right now is he's realizing that, oh, he didn't catch the Ezekiel reference. He doesn't understand that this is actually a prophecy in which I will wash away my people's filth and idolatry and I will give them a spirit in which they can live and be with me at all times. So Jesus is sitting here and he's like, dude, how have you studied this your entire life and you can't see it? Or can I say it in layman's terms? How have you watched the screen for so long, but never gotten the full picture? And it says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's actually pointing, right? He's literally like, listen, I'm referencing Ezekiel. You've seen my works. You know what I possess. Can you trust that being born again? Listen, isn't that language interesting? You're not, you can't see the earthly. How are you going to believe the heavenly? I need you to be born again. You've been born on earth, but can you be born in the heavens of the revelation knowledge that now you can live and walk in? And it says this, no one has ascended into heaven, verse 13, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. We're getting to that crescendo moment, right? John 3.16 is right here. But this is what's important, and I'm going to say this to you. I'm going to say this to you. If this is the only thing you leave with, that's fine. But I want you to understand that Nicodemus had been taught how to do religion, and specifically the religion of Judaism. He had done everything right, circumcised within the covenant, raised in the art of keeping the law, schooled in an ability that only few on earth had knowledge of. Yet he couldn't see Jesus when he was right in front of him. And what I'm trying to say today is this. You can check all of the boxes and have been taught in all of the right ways, but it's not about teaching, it's about seeing And I believe a lot of us, what we've done, the bare minimum, is how can I learn instead of how can I see? See, John 3.16 is a story of a man who couldn't see the gospel, and so Jesus had to break it down in such basic 24-word terms that it would be undeniable to those who would be looking for it at a later date. But also he had to break it down for the people who are like Nicodemus, who have walked the walk, talked the talk, learned everything there is to learn. But still at the end of the day, wonder why can't I see him? And that's my question to you today. As we look at this story, Jesus actually gives him a little bit of a, of a, a carrot, you should say. And what he says is interesting is that that as Moses is lifted up, 
the serpent in the wilderness, even so the mud of the Son of Man must be lifted up. See, he missed the Ezekiel reference. So he goes on and says, well, how are you missing? Let me give you another one. Moses constructing an image that in faith you would look upon for healing that's found in the Old Testament. Jesus then becoming that image again in the New Testament that if you look upon with faith would heal you. So what he does is he says, okay, you missed the Ezekiel passage. Maybe you're not as good as seeing as you need to be. I'm just going to give you a foreshadowing of what you need to be looking for. When I'll be lifted up, those who look upon me will find everlasting life. But once again, he's not saying if you learn this, if you go back to school for longer, if you get trained better, he's saying... Look upon something and let it meet you where you are. And more than that, would you believe with a born-again mindset of above that what's taking place in front of you can give you everlasting life? See, that's what I need you to understand. The gospel doesn't fit in man-made human logic. It doesn't fit in the confines of a perfect to-do list in which we can do the bare minimum to get the B- minus, to get the the diploma and not get grounded on the weekend. The gospel doesn't fit inside of these things. And even that image of just look upon him and have everlasting life, there's so much within theology and reason that we try to quantify what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I want to say this today. It's eyes wide open looking upon what he's done over and over. And from that place, following that spirit that he purchased over and over. And from that place, trusting that it's washing us away and studying those statues and ordinances so we become what he purchased for us over and over. Seeing the image of God within our day-to-day existence, within our relationships, within our workplaces, our schools, within our families. See, what would it look like to live this existence in which God purchased you a right to not only know the things, but to see him? Because today we've gotten really good at teaching the things to know, but not teaching people to see. John 3.16, the last part. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge, but that the world might be saved through him. That whole verse is written to somebody who couldn't see it, who had Jesus right in front of him, literally, and could not recognize who he was, who had Jesus telling him what he was going to do and couldn't see it, knew all the stuff. And I would say this, had done the bare minimum to get into heaven, but had not fully experienced what heaven on earth could look like. See, and I think this is the challenge today, is if you're somebody who just wants to get into heaven following God, that's, that's a great starting place. But there is so much more purchased for you in this world. There is so much more purchased within following Jesus that we can tap into if we're willing to be washed, to follow that Spirit's leading, to put forth those statues and ordinances in a way that we construct our lives around it. See, the gospel is not just the 24-word version of John 3.16. It's the idea that when we look up, it is the creator who can create again as he's prioritized in the right order. 
And I want to say this to you today, and some of you guys have been here as I've talked about John 3.16. There's three things within the verse that have always stood out to me. He so loved. And I think this is important for all of us individually to understand is it's not just this thing that compelled Jesus. Jesus wasn't compelled to go to the cross just because he kind of loved you. That adjective of so loved is almost an adjective of compulsion. That he was so enthralled with the thought of being with you relationally that he would sacrifice anything needed to get that proximity. And I think so often what we do is we view God. God views us as I so love you and we view him as I kind of love you. John 3.16 is a reminder that our God was not content with distance. He wanted us to know that he could be with us at any time. And create a promise of proximity in his presence. The second thing that sticks out to me is that he, he gave. And I think for a lot of us, if I were to ask you the question, does your love give? Not within the financial, but within the sacrificial. Giving of time. Giving of development. Giving of putting God first and laying everything at his feet in your life. And organizing your humanity and personhood around the Godhead. Believe it or not, when you seek first the kingdom and righteousness, all things are added. And I have lived that in its fullness. But I want to say to you today, as a lot of us, we want the gospel without having to give up anything in return. And that's not what was purchased. The last thing that sticks out about John 3.16 is the whosoever. What many of us don't realize is that we know that John 3.16 was written to Nicodemus, but what we don't realize is that Nicodemus, this would have been offensive. Somebody who studied their entire life as a Pharisee, chosen as a, as a prodigious pupil to be well-versed in the law for the whosoever to get what he could have. What I'm trying to say is, is Jesus is offending his mind on purpose as he's looking and saying, guess what? It's going to be the Greek. It's going to be the Jew. It's going to be the Roman. It's going to be the Gentile. It's going to be the woman at the well. It's going to be the, the one trapped in adultery. It's going to be all of them. The whosoever is the gospel. And anytime you try to cancel yourself out based off of the sin that you've walked out on, based off of the mistakes that you've made, what you do is you look at John 3.16 and you say, ah, that's not really real. See, any person who can sit here in this room and say, well, I don't know if God wants me, forgets that the 24-word version of what Jesus wrote was literally for the words that would come out of your mouth to be redeemed and then replanted that he does want you. And what I'm saying today is this. Is that he so loves you, he gave, and that you're the whosoever he purchased. But John 3.16 is not just this idea of fleeting knowledge. It's not just this creed that we utter to get a passing grade. It is who we are called to become, to follow, to institute, to revolutionize our existence around. My final thought today is that same physics teacher... I'll never forget this. I took a test. He pulled me outside. Two days after I took that test, and he looked at me and he said, Micah, are you okay? Is everything going all right? And I said, yeah, why? And he said, because I, I've been teaching for three years, and this is the worst test score I've ever given out. 
He said, this is 112 questions and you got eight right. (laughs) And he looked at me and I'll, I'll never forget this though. I'll never forget this. He looked at me and he said, this is the worst test score I've ever given out before, but I'm gonna let you retake it. And he didn't ask me if I wanted to retake it. He just looked at me and he said, you failed. I'm going to let you retake it. And I want to say this to you, like I said, my final, final, final moment is the thing about Jesus is you can retake it as much as you want under this aspect of putting in more effort than the time before to be a little bit better tomorrow. And if that's the only thing you leave with, I've said that now twice, but it's fine. Can we realize that God is not this leaps and bounds transformation? It's a decision today to be a little bit better. And knowing that even though we failed tests, he'll allow us to retake him. Let's stand to our feet. If you know the practice here is I kind of write up a prayer that I read over people. So whatever your posture for receptivity is. I pray that this prayer kind of meets you where you are. Oh God, today would you write with ink on our hearts your good news. That we, though destined to perish, have been given everlasting life. That though we are dead in sin, you so loved us. That you were compelled to give on behalf to close the distance. That there would be no more elitism of good works, but rather grace extended to the whosoevers. God, teach us to not seek a good teacher, but to look upon a Messiah. Teach us to have eyes to see you and hearts that know you more than just a knowledge that speaks of you. Today, help us to receive a new birth, but a birth from above. One filled with the Spirit, one that has been baptized and washed us clean of a broken and fallen world. Give us the strength and faith to look upon the one lifted up on behalf of us and know that he has purchased much more than a temporary healing, but rather an eternal life. God, we don't want to check all the boxes of performance if it means we can't see, feel, sense, and walk with you. May we never get so cerebral in our focus that we cannot see you right in front of us. God, may our lives be the good news to others, causing them to ask why we live how we do, making others ponder their lives in the context of our faithful obedience. May the good news be preached more from our movements and rhythms than microphones and platforms. God, restore your creation to the intended purpose. Restore our gaze towards heaven, born again from something above, to live with eternity in mind. Give us the eyes that see, the heart that knows, and the spirit that follows. In Jesus' name.